Inflation has hit a very high number recently in the United States of America. 7% something. Who cares what it is after the decimal point? 7%. Unbelievable. 7% inflation. But Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Investments, wants to bring to our attention that maybe it's not inflation. Maybe it's a consumer price increase. And maybe if we look into the details, we can learn whether or not this is going to be a persistent long-term sort of increase in consumer goods, or is it caused by money? What is causing this increase in consumer goods? We're going to talk about it. And Jeff, it's not just your opinion. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Emil Kalinowski. It's not just your opinion. You start right out in this article that we're going to use as, as our springboard, asking a very important question about a big market that says, how is it that U.S. Treasury rates out in the independent longer end of the yield curve have now suffered a 7% CPI to go along with a double taper, double speed, and triple, maybe quadruple, if the whispers are to be believed, rate hikes this year, and yet have weathered all of that allegedly bond-busting brutality with barely a market fluctuation. Is it a market fluctuation? You hear the mainstream media talk and it's like the biggest bond sell-off ever in history. It's like 1994 times 100, right? But yeah, I mean, the 10-year treasury yield was like, what, 136, 137 at one point a couple of weeks ago. Now it's it touched 180 earlier this week. I mean, that's not really much of a sell-off. That's basically a market fluctuation. And we saw a bigger one last year at this time. Okay, so we've got... The Federal Reserve is tapering at double the pace. It's going to hike rates maybe three times, maybe four times. And those are going to extend out into the future. And now we have this massive 40, 39 year high CPI, 7%. Sounds like it, it's more at home in the 1970s. And they've been coming one after another after another. We've been seeing these accelerate over the last few months. So something's not right here. Or at least something doesn't add up to the mainstream idea that this is the great inflation 2.0, where we have inflation not just at 7% today, but supposedly it's going to go on and on and on forever. And if we use the bond market for anything of value, the bond market is telling us no. So where, where are we going wrong here? Why are yields staying low? whereas CPI seem to be only going higher. What is the disconnect here? I was on the radio this week and radio came in and I was asked that question. I was asked because gold prices hadn't reacted. They haven't reacted to the inflation, which was very, very high. And my answer was, well, maybe it's not a monetary inflation. Maybe the private banks are not creating a lot of money. Maybe the Fed isn't creating a lot of money. Maybe government spending isn't creating a lot of money. And that's what gold may be reacting to. And I suppose the same is the, true of U.S. Treasury rates. We're going to talk about it in detail in part two of this episode, because you just said we have had a, a route, the lowest bond prices in two years. And in part two of this episode, we're going to talk about another time where we saw something similar, the lowest, the worst bond route in seven years, the, the highest yield in four years. So we're going to get into that a lot in part two, but if we just look at the CPI number itself, the December reading was interesting, Jeff, because it was a little bit different than in previous months. In previous months, we were saying used vehicles, car prices, and oil. Was that the same this month? 
It basically the same proportion this month, but you know, oil prices on a monthly basis, they were actually in oil, therefore gasoline prices were actually lower in December. So December's acceleration over November this time wasn't all about gasoline. In fact, it wasn't about gasoline at all. It was about other things, which kind of makes it seem like, okay, we've got inflation or consumer prices rising in these narrow channels of automobiles, used cars especially, and then gasoline prices. But now it wasn't gasoline prices. Yes, car prices accelerated a bit in December, but it was, you know, the prices of all other goods actually accelerated too. Are we actually seeing inflation broaden out beyond just those narrow channels? And in one sense, yeah, it's it's reaching more of the goods economy, likely in response to the frenzy before Christmas and everybody trying to get their presents to deal with the supply and logistical issues that have plagued the goods economy for the last couple of months. But overall, you look at the prices of goods in the CPI, they've accelerated, but you know, then you look at everything else. And remember, the services economy and outside of goods is by far the larger component. And it's not the same at all. In fact, it's going the actually actually in the opposite direction. So if we're looking for clues as to what the bond market sees, we're not going to talk about QE and bond buying and all that stuff because we've done that to death. So the bond market is skeptical about the CPI. When we look at the CPI details, we see any number of reasons why that might be the case. Very quickly, you mentioned in this article that core CPI rose 5.45%. Back to that idea that it's not food and it's not energy. Even the core number is rising. And you've got a graph here that shows all other prices rising. So to your point, again, maybe this is going to be it. Finally, in December, we, we're seeing a broadening of an increase in prices. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, if you wanted to play along and read along or sing along, you can do so by going to Alhambra Investments, going to articles that were posted on the 12th of January, 2022, and finding one that was titled U.S. CPI Reaches 7 on U.S. Goods Prices with Disinflation Setting in Everywhere Else, Including U.S. Services. You just mentioned it, Jeff. Okay, goods. You've got a graph here that shows the camel humps. So we've got the two camel humps, and now we can see the head. We see that in that graph. You is that mentioned, what it is? I was thinking it was a third camel hump, but I guess that wouldn't make much sense, would it? You obviously, it would be a weird camel. So uh, third camel hump, the head of the camel, something there. You obviously didn't grow up in Arizona, Jeff. Camels only have two humps. That's the head. And you mentioned me even by name in here. It's very sweet. Mother's very proud of that. I appreciate that, Jeff. Okay, so we see it in the goods. CPI, another two humps plus the head. And it hasn't really come down in the goods. It's like three months in a row where it's at an elevated level month to month. We'll see what happens next. But you're saying, wait a minute. Maybe that was just Christmas. Maybe that's logistics. Maybe it's a supply-demand imbalance. Maybe it's everyone ordering online rapidly. Remember, in 2020, we all of a sudden, we shifted rapidly to online ordering, ordering versus gradually, not allowing the supply chain to adjust gradually. When we look at services, which you hear define as services, less rent and shelter, rent of shelter, we don't really see that camel's head, do we? What do you make of that? We have the double hump and then almost nothing. There was a rise in October consistent with everything else and what, more of what we're going to get to. But since October, November into now December, you know, services prices have actually decelerated down to some of the lowest monthly rates in the entire series. 
Again, we're, we're, about, we're down to about 0.1% month over month in December, which is incredibly low. And it's the opposite of what we see in the goods economy. So if we're talking about inflation, real inflation, monetary inflation, to use your term, Emil, I'm actually getting normalized to it. So maybe I won't hate it as much. You cursed anyway. me in an article and another blog post. Did, you, yes. you cursed me <laughs> and you did. said, yes, monetary inflation. Email. You're going to get me to use that term over and over. And, and I'm going to I'm, maybe I'm actually going to like it even, which is <laughs> boggles okay. the mind. I threw you anyway, off. So if this was monetary, if this was real inflation due to money, we wouldn't see services decelerate so radically and persistently as it has really since the, the early part of last year. So, yes, in consumer price increases and acceleration is broadened out, but only in the goods sector. Outside of the goods sector, it's a very different story, which, again, raises our levels of skepticism to say that this is not monetary inflation in Emil's vernacular and jargon. It must be something else specific to goods, which, oh, by the way, we've been talking about supply shock and supply chain issues in goods all along. So in the, the U.S. services economy, there's actually two things here. Number one, it's not acting like inflation at all. Number two, it's more consistent with disinflation and troubling levels of indicated demand and activity, which kind of goes along with the whole growth scare thing that developed over the second half of the year. So not only do we not see accelerating price increases in services, we're actually looking more downside-ish than anything else. And then, of course, then we start looking elsewhere around the world, which one is going to split the tie here, so to speak. We're going to talk about China next, but a very quick detour, very quick detour. You mentioned that it's not being caused by money. We're not going to talk about it in this episode, but you've been writing a series this week about the Bank for International Settlements derivative data and how that data is representative. It's an avatar of money. And we don't see growth there. And I bring it up just as a detour in case you wanted to mention it, because you do include a couple of graphs here in this article showing that BIS data. Jeff, did you want to say anything about that more than I just said, other than derivatives are flat, therefore money is flat, therefore we should not expect monetary inflation? Yeah, there's really not much you can say briefly other than just what you said. I mean, otherwise, we get into a very long discussion about what the derivatives are actually showing. And it's basically a proxy for balance sheet capacity uh, overall in the monetary system. If we don't see derivatives go up, we sort of imply from that that there's not monetary expansion, there's not balance sheet expansion. So if this was monetary inflation, to continue to use your term, Emil, we would expect that we would have seen long before now the money for it. And bank reserves, as we've said time and time again, are not money. They're not used as money. So that's not any kind of useful indication for inflation. This derivative stuff actually is. And the BIS data shows pretty conclusively that since 2019, derivative levels have actually fallen. So we're moving in the wrong direction rather than even, even in the right direction by not even enough. We're, we're moving in the wrong direction as far as derivatives goes, which is an indication that no, there's really not the money globally behind this, as we know from other proxies like TIC or Z1 or some of the other data too. Again, inflation, monetary inflation, there isn't the money, so there must be something else going on. We started out talking about United States consumer price inflation. Right now, we just talked about the BIS data, which represents the world, at least advanced economy, money center, banking activity, which I don't know, 80% of activity, let's say. Now let's continue down that worldly path and talk about China. You've got here producer prices. Jeff, what 
correlation is there to consumer prices in the United States? What can we learn here? There's actually a pretty good one. <laughs> if you look at the Chinese data monthly versus the U.S. CPI data services in particular monthly, you see the three camera humps, the two camera humps in the head, whatever it is. They appear in both almost exactly simultaneously. And, you know, the point that you just made, Emil, about the BIS being global data, global money, when we talk about actual inflation and economic conditions, even treasury yield, what we're really talking about is this global monetary system. Therefore, inflation, real inflation, isn't about just the U.S. It isn't about just Europe. It's a global situation. It's a global phenomenon because it's a global monetary system. So maybe there are times when the U.S. CPI can go up. But if that isn't matched or, you know, if, if that isn't corroborated by inflation data around the rest of the world, then we're, we're looking at idiosyncrasies that probably aren't going to last. So we, we started out here, U.S. CPI and goods is accelerating very high, U.S. CPI and services going in the opposite direction. We take a look at China, and as you just pointed out, Emil, and the producer prices, they match up much closer with U.S. services than U.S. goods, which tells you in particular November and December, Big time slowdown, big time slowdown in whatever's going on there, because the, the monthly CPI rate for December in particular was hugely negative. And again, we're not uh, complaining or excusing is the word I'm after. We're not excusing or somehow diminishing. That's an even better word that I want to use. We're not diminishing the unpleasantness of goods increasing, especially during a time when the labor force participation rate in the United States is awful. It, this is bad news. We don't like it, but it's just don't look at the Federal Reserve. Don't look at the central government as creating too much money, as ex being explanatory for what we're witnessing. Jeff, Chinese producer prices heading down, just like the services inflation in the United States. We end with a couple of graphs that show the yield curve in the United States, as well as that it's flattening. Anything else that we want to mention to the audience before we wrap up this particular article and this topic? Yeah, and it's the same thing in Chinese consumer prices as well as producer prices. Which, in fact, it's, it's more extreme in, in Chinese consumer prices, which haven't really risen all that much at all. And here we're talking about the second largest economy, as well as one that has been accused of overstimulating and overdoing it in its own right for the last couple of years, too, in some places. So if we were thinking about inflation, as real monetary inflation across the entire world, again, we only find it in those things most heavily associated with U.S. goods. The U.S. goods, the supply shock, the frenzy that was released temporarily by Uncle Sam's helicopters earlier in this year, which pushed up commodity prices, which made uh, shipping that much more difficult and created all sorts of bottlenecks and issues like that. But it wasn't money. It wasn't actual inflation. If it was, we would see it in all these places. And I think more of the problem, more to the point where we're getting into bond yields, bond yields sorting out this inflation data for us, we're also looking at the outlook. What is 2022 going to look like? And if we're looking at the end of 2021 for clues about this year, some of those are not really good at all. Again, we have you know, producer prices in China that are suddenly reversed hard, looking like they've made a top around October. U.S. services prices. That third hump or the, the camel's head, October, uh, Chinese consumer prices, they wouldn't get really very high at all. 2.3% on the CPI is nothing, but still, that high was reached in October. And if we match this up with the bond market, U.S. Treasury yields and all those around the rest of the world, 
the treasury yield curve started to flatten, especially at the long end, the independent end, October. So the bond market, the U.S. Treasury yield curve, has been saying since October, hey, maybe there's not inflation, number one. And number two, maybe all this inflation stuff is really starting to abate in these non-U.S. goods areas, which is basically the entire rest of the economy. So we have the yield curve flattening since October, and now we have services CPI data that goes along with that. And even more extreme and probably even more relevant and potentially important for this year Chinese PPI, Chinese CPI data that says price pressures are coming off maybe a little too fast. Maybe we're moving in the wrong direction too quickly, which goes along with this whole end of 2021, beginning 2022 growth scare thing. Jeff, are bond prices telling us that these supply chain bottlenecks and imbalances between demand and supply, you know, ordering online is that those are going to be abating soon? Is that what they're telling us? Or they're just looking at the monetary aspect of the increase in consumer prices? Because I think some of the confusion or the, the problem with the messaging is the word transitory. Transitory surely yeah. means what some time period that's less than the elapsed time period since April, right? In the United States, consumer price indices started rising in April and they've only really accelerated since then. And I think we're in January. That's too long in my book for transitory. But it's <laughs> you're it's right. Not, I think that's exactly ahead. right. People have this, you know, transitory brings up, you know, different things to different people. I think the vast majority of people would say eight months is not transitory. Mm -hmm. But I would say I would counter that with when we're talking about economics. And as you know, Emil, these euro dollar cycles are multi-year processes. Eight months really isn't all that long at all. Most people, they really want to know, okay, we, when we accept your explanation. This isn't monetary inflation. This is caused by something else. But when is it going to end? Everybody wants to know when it's going to end. Do we have any clues about what that might be? And the answer is not really. We don't have any solid data in the bond market or elsewhere that says, okay, January, February, March 2022, it's all done. It's, it's over with. We can speculate. We don't need the bond market for this, that inflation rates are going to come down through base effects alone. Once we get into April 2022, comparing with the fast rates of April 2021, inflation rates are going to come down for nothing more than just simple arithmetic. But that's not what, really, what, what we're really talking about here. What we're really talking about here is what the bond market is pricing is probabilities of a downside case over the intermediate and long run. That's what bond yields are telling us, that despite what has happened in CPIs, in economic terms in, in 2021, that has not translated into better probabilities of growth inflation over the longer term. If anything, if we're comparing this apples to apples, we really should be comparing the yield curve today with the yield curve in, say, 2018 or 2013, 2014, or something like that. Really, we should be comparing it to the yield curve pre-crisis. And what the yield curve is saying is that there's almost no chance, no chance that this fast CPI rates that we've seen recently are going to continue on for any legitimate reason. We don't know exactly when the uh, supply stuff is going to fade into the history, the effects of last year's helicopter, whatever. We don't know when the goods economy is going to finally cool off and disinflate itself. But we do know that the chances of that happening at some point in the not too distant future are pretty Almost certain. In part two of this episode, we're going to talk about the bond market and what it's telling us because it's at all time two year highs. And what might that mean? It might mean inflation, it might mean a bond right, it might mean the end of the world. 
But would you believe it that we recently had such experiences? And we're going to look back at those all-time multi-year highs in previous years and see what they might tell us about the future. Treasury market 10-year bond is at all-time two-year highs. Well, not quite two-year highs, but you wouldn't know that from the financial media. It sure sounds like all-time. Well, and certainly it means something big. Something big is afoot. And that's maybe why the Federal Reserve is hiking, will be hiking and tapering as fast as possible. Does it mean inflation? Does it mean anything? What does a two-year high really mean, at least in the context of 2022. Jeff Snyder is going to answer those questions for us in two articles. He's the head of global research for Alhambra Investments. And at Alhambra Investments is where you'll find our very first article. It was posted on the 10th of January. It's not perfume, but it does smell funny. Conundrum number five. Let us yes, start with the relevant background. Yeah, let's tell start us. with that, right? Bond yields have exploded. Bond yields are in the stratosphere. They're the highest they've been in almost two years, which is supposed to be some meaningful surpass or un, you know surpassing some insurmountable obstacle, as if a two-year high is some big thing, especially since rates have been suppressed very low for those entire two years. Yeah. Somehow this is a, a meaningful shift, supposedly. Which two years, business media? The two <laughs> years that include a historic, mind-bending shutdown of the global economy? Is it that two years? Wow. We're at two-year highs. There, Emil. I think you're, you're insinuating that the media is being hyperbolic for, non, uh, you know, for disingenuous reasons. No, look, I mean, we're human nature, right? Human nature, plus this, this silly business of finance where we have all sorts of charts and things and lines and trends and all these other things. We're told that this is supposed to be meaningful. The 10-year Treasury yield hit 176, which was higher than the high that it had been last March. Therefore, it's the highest it's been in two years. So how could this not be some earth-shattering development, especially since bond yields at the long end, which have been a thorn in the media side, been a thorn in Jay Powell's side for all these years, Suddenly, they're starting to explode upward. At least that's how it's characterized. Whereas more sane and cool heads would look at the charts and say, yes, technically speaking, the 10 years at a, uh, almost a two-year high. Yes, technically speaking, yields have gone up about 30, 35, 40 basis points, depending on part of the curve over the last couple of months, last six weeks or so. Those things are true, but how are they anything more than a market fluctuation? We've seen much bigger, much, much bigger moves in shorter spaces of time that didn't amount to anything, as well as, as what we're going to talk about here, we've seen these multi, multi, multi-year highs numerous times before, and they don't add up to diddly squat. In this era, in this era, in another era, they might have. It depends. That's why you guys are listening to this show. You're learning about what the monetary background is. Okay, let's talk about 2005, when it was a multi-year high. It was the Highest in four years, I believe, that the yields got up to. And Mr. Alan Greenspan was in front of Congress in February of 2005. And he used a very famous word, very famous word. It wasn't irrational exuberance. It wasn't proliferation of financial products. It was conundrum. What was the conundrum? What was he conundrumed by? 
Well, the, the Federal Reserve had, after the dot-com recession, continued to cut rates because the, the economic recovery didn't seem to respond in the immediate aftermath of what was really a mild recession. But by 2004, the economy started to pick up. We started to see signs of life throughout the U.S. and much of the rest of the world, too. So June of 2004, the Fed said, hey, maybe we did this too. We did too much here. Maybe we kept late rates too low and there's risk of inflation. The FOMC meeting June 24 or June 2004, from there on out, every meeting, they had rate hike, rate hike, rate hike, 25 basis point, 25 basis point, 25 basis point. Almost a year into it or, you know, uh, seven months into those rate hikes, Dear Allen was sitting in front of Congress wondering why, hey, we're hiking rates. Why aren't long-term bond yields responding to these rate hikes? In fact, from June 2004 until February 2005, rates were actually lower at the long end. And Allen was, he told Congress, like, I'm totally confounded by this. He insinuated that we had never seen something like this before, which was a lie. But he was making it seem like this was some brand new phenomenon that the Fed couldn't explain because it had just showed up out of nowhere. So this was Alan Greenspan's conundrum, and he made Congress believe it was the first time that he or anyone at the Fed had experienced such a thing, when in fact that just wasn't true. As you were talking, we showed that graph that showed exactly what we were describing, where you've got the federal funds rate being raised, and then you've got the short-term rates reacting to it. Great, great. But the long-term rate completely ignored it. And this didn't comport with how Alan Greenspan saw bond markets or at least explained to Congress how they should be seen. Jeff, this is a quote that you often use right before you roll the, your eyes to the back of your head. It's Let's that ridiculous. It's really it's one of those most. Yeah, I, you have to cringe or roll your eyes whenever you hear this because it's let, so absurd. Let's take the opportunity. This is a Eurodollar University classic. Let's take the opportunity to explain why you nearly pass out every time you hear this. Quote, Alan Greenspan, the 10-year long-term bond yields, quote, can be thought of as an average of 10 consecutive one-year forward rates. Yeah, which basically means that the entire U.S. Treasury yield curve is under the control of the Federal Reserve because in his formulation, they move the front one. That's the one that they directly influence the most through the federal funds target or open market operations, whatever it happens to be. And then what he's saying is as a series of 10 one-year forwards, they all just fall in line. So if Allen is raising the federal funds target and threatening open market operations to achieve it, then all the rest of the curve should move in exact tandem to his rate hike. So if they had done essentially you know, four rate hikes, let's say by the time between he started and they got to February 2005, that's approximately about that number then we would expect yields to be higher 1% at the front end because there's four 25 basis point rate hikes. And then at least that much everywhere else down the curve, it should obey a series of 10 one-year forward rates. If anybody knows even a little bit about how the bond market works, this is just such a ridiculous proposition. That's not how it works. And we even talked about this just recently. Yes, the Fed can influence the front end of the curve, as you pointed out, Emil, on that chart. You see short-term rates out to about the five-year treasury sort of obeying Allen's command. They're moving up in tandem with the federal funds rate. But then you get to the middle of the curve and further out, it acts completely independently based on Irving Fisher's formulation from over a century ago, growth and inflation perception. So the Fed is pushing the front end up and the long end is saying, I don't agree with why you're pushing rates up, Alan. You think that inflation's a risk. We don't see it at all. So that was really his conundrum, which was, we see inflation, 
we're the gods of all finance. We're the lords of all economy. We're raising rates. Then everybody should just simply fall in line and obey with what we what we say. And it's a conundrum, a brand new conundrum when this doesn't happen. The chutzpah. It's funny, yeah, because as you, I'm glad you mentioned that it. it was Irving Fisher's a hundred years ago now, but eighty years ago then, right? Uh, so and it wasn't it was, exactly controversial. I mean, everybody pretty much accepts that's what long term yields are. That Irving Fisher was right back in the early 1900s, that it's growth and inflation expectation. Now, that conundrum is very famous if people don't have lives and they follow this sort of work that we talk about. Okay, so it's famous in that sense. The other conundrums are not as famous. Now, I'm going to segue, and you're going to tell us that there were previous conundrums. Okay, quote, here he is, Mr. Greenspan again. For the moment, the broadly unanticipated behavior of world bond markets remains a conundrum Bond price movements may be a short-term aberration, but it will be some time before we are able to better judge the forces underlying recent experiences. And then you tell us, this may be very surprising to people, that he was being deceptive on purpose. What was he being deceptive about? That there was actually something similar taking place twice beforehand. And the episode just prior to that was only a couple years beforehand. We're talking about the late 1990s and early 2000s leading up to the dot-com recession, as well as the Asian financial crisis before then. And the same kind of thing. It wasn't as extreme as it was in 2005, but, you know, 1999 into 2000, you had a similar setup where the Federal Reserve, fearing an outbreak of inflation, decided to raise interest rates. And, you know, by and large, the short, the short end of the yield curve obeyed those interest rate increases as it would continuously. The long end was a little bit skeptical. The yield curve flattened until we get to early 2000 when the market started to really resist. And even though the Fed would continue on with hiking rates, in fact, do a 50 basis point rate hike in the middle of 2000, which was the long end of the bond market saying, look, we're, we're not, we don't see this inflation risk. In fact, we see the opposite. So early, already in the year 2000, there was the second conundrum where the, the market was not obeying was not acting like a series of one year forwards just a couple years before Greenspan told Congress this was something new. And then we go back even earlier than that to 1997, 1998. There was only one rate hike in that sequence. But still, you know, the idea in, in uh, 1997, 96, 97 was that the Fed was going to be hiking rates again because it needed to cool off the economy. The long term end of the yield curve said, uh uh-uh, uh, no way. And so you had the same sort of conundrum and maybe it's most you know, primitive and nascent form, which is still the same problem. This dichotomy where one part of the yield curve does one thing and another part of the yield curve sort of responds to the Fed, but only temporarily until it joins the long end of the yield curve in expressing skepticism. By the time Greenspan got to Congress in 2005, that wasn't the first time. It was actually the third time we'd seen this dynamic in the yield curve where short rates for the time being for a temporary period We'll do what Greenspan wants them to do, but only up until about the five-year treasury note on the yield curve. From thereafter, all bets are off. If the long end of the curve doesn't see in growth and inflation and you know real plausible scenario for those things, and it doesn't matter what Greenspan says, and it doesn't matter what Greenspan does, doesn't matter what Bernanke says or Bernanke does, or bringing this up to the, the, to the current age, it does not matter what Jay Powell says or what Jay Powell is about to do. If the long end doesn't see growth and inflation, conundrum. It's interesting uh, coincidence how the Asian financial crisis serves as a prototype for a couple of uh, phenomena that we like to talk about. It was the prototype for the global dollar shortage, that time regional, 
and a prototype for the conundrum. The first one there, then the one in the dot-com bubble that we had yields rise to the highest in two years. Then in 2005, the most famous conundrum where yields were the highest in four years. And now we're coming up to present day when the yields are highest in two years. But before we get to present day, let's talk about another conundrum. One, two, three, number four, the one that, that occurred in 2018. And we're going to do that one by going to another article. Conflict of interest rates, the 10-year treasury yield highest in almost two years. And Mr. Tateo, did I say that right? What a great, great phrase. Conflict of interest rates. Okay, Jeff, 2018, bond yields rise to highest to seven-year high. Time to worry, CNN business. CNBC, 10-year yield jumps to highest in seven years as investors bet on roaring economy and higher inflation. Reuters, after market route. Signs point to even higher bond yields. <laughs> we laugh about it now because, you know, within a couple weeks, a couple weeks after those articles, those headlines were screamed, splashed all over the TVs and all over the, the Internet, the entire bond market reversed. And we haven't been anywhere close to that since. So to our original point, a multi-year high. I mean, this was a seven year high. This was the 10-year yield getting higher than it had been in 2013, the end of 2013. This was higher than the taper tantrum. Why wasn't it significant? Because it's not. It's just not a significant marker. It's something that we humans intuit and say, oh, this must be significant, but that doesn't actually mean anything. It actually meaningful is behind the move in interest rates. In fact, when we look at, as you just did, Emil, these patterns that repeat time and time again, 2018 is, is almost boring because it was exactly the same process as the middle 2000s or 2000 in the conundrums earlier. So we see that the bond market at the long end of the yield curve is saying, no, Jay, we, no, Janet, we don't see the inflation and growth you're talking about. Yet the Fed does the rate hikes and pushes the short end up anyway. And eventually those two parts of the curve come into collision. They come into conflict of interest. So the long end resists, the short end gets pushed up by this non-economic policy decision. And that can have a temporary effect on nominal levels at the long end, too, because the short, the long end might be resisting that upward pressure from the short end, but it can get pushed up itself. And so in 2018, throughout much of 2018, long-term bond yields were rising. They were moving up. They weren't moving down. They were moving up, but they were resisting the short end movement, which is why the yield curve flattened, which meant they were not rising nearly as much as they were at the short end, which is the same thing as saying, we're skeptical about your position, Jay Powell. We don't believe in what's going on. And so the yield curve flattening rather than the rising level nominally is what should have grabbed everybody's attention. But that's, that's hardly the sexy headline that highest in seven years actually is. That's the key, Jeff, right? Because we always say on this show, look to the bond market. So the audience that's a repeat audience, whatever, however many tens of people that is, yes, <laughs> they may be wondering, What's going on? Have they drank uh, perhaps addled eggnog that's still around from Christmas? Because they always tell us bond yields are important. The bond market is important. But there are multiple ways of looking at the bond market. And yes, the nominal headline yield is important, but also the curve that you just mentioned there at the end. And as we've been implicitly saying throughout this episode is it's that curve, the spread is what we want to see 
rising in concert, the whole thing, not flattening out. And in 2018, what else did we see? We saw other measures in disagreement, the U.S. dollar, the euro dollar futures curve. Same uh, things that we're seeing today, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's amazing how history repeats itself. But that's I think that's the point you really want to make here, Emil, is that when we're looking at the bond market, we say turn to the bond market for answers. The nominal level can tell you something, but that's mm -hmm. not the only part of it. You need to look at the yield curve shape for confirmation, for context, for you know more depth to your analysis. And so if we see nominal yields rise, that might be, oh, that might be the bond market saying growth and inflation expectations are, are increasing. That was certainly why yields were rising last year in the early part of 2021. That was what we would expect to see when things are getting better because the bond yields rose more at the long end than at the short end. The yield curve steepened. So that, that time in that episode, that instance, nominal yields were rising and it turned out to be a positive or more opt optimistic setting because of how the overall curve shifted and the dynamic nature of what was going on then. This year, nominal yields are a touch higher than they were at that point last year, but the yield curve is in a very, very different place in a very different shape. That tells you that the reason why nominal yields have risen at the long end is very different this year than what it was last year. Last year was about, hey, we're improving. 2020 was a disaster. 2021 won't be as much of a disaster. And maybe the future won't be as bad as 2020, low bar, but still. 2022, long-term yields are being moved up in the same way they were being moved up in 2018, which was this transition to this non-economic policy interference at the short end. Not because of growth and inflation expectations, but because Jay Powell thinks he has to raise rates because of inflation that the bond market just doesn't see at all, which is why we're seeing this conundrum number five and what a really an obscenely low level. That's right. I don't have anything more, Jeff. You summarized it very well. The, the fifth time, and you know, I guess we shouldn't sell the farm just yet, ladies and gentlemen. We should take a look around and look at the other monetary measures. This is the fifth time we've seen this since the late 1990s. Let's see before we know. We believe that there's a rip-roaring inflation. Anything from you, Jeff? Yeah, just the, I mean, look, multi-year highs don't mean squat. They really mm. don't without some major context to go along with it. So we can look at the highest yield in, in two, almost two years and just completely ignore that. It's just noise. I have a visceral example of multi-year highs and how it means nothing. President Trump, when he was in office, he would always talk about how high the stock market is and how low the unemployment rate is. And when President Biden was put into power, it was assumed that he would be much less crass and much less orange. Guess what? This last weekend, the White House put out a statement showing how many jobs gained under the Biden administration and compared it to all previous presidents. So the most jobs gained in the last year or two. Is Joe Biden the greatest president in American history along this one measure? Yes multi-year high. Wow. It was so crass. It was so orange. I thought we were beyond the orange stuff, Jeff. Yeah, what am I trying to say? You know what I'm trying to say. It's, it's things just, can be, if you take anything out of context, it can be as out of context. Right. And then even again, Gross. as we started out, yes, the 10 years at a, almost a two-year high, though it's not today. Yeah, that's fine. But it's still 1.75. <laughs> that's not a big number. So it's closer to a record low than it is the peak of the last cycle, which was 2018, when we had a seven-year high that lasted all of a couple of weeks. 
I feel like we we were in 1939 and they said, look at this, guys. It's so much better than 1937, 1938. Great. That's true. But, you know, it doesn't mean anything to the, to the regular person trying to live their life. Speaking of depressions and difficult eras and difficult moments in history, in part three of this episode, we're going to talk about something that's very popular on social media recently. And it was made possible by an interview by Chris Martinson, and then even more popular by an interview with Joe Rogan. And it's this idea of, uh, what is it called? A broad psychosis, deep psychosis. What is it, Jeff? What is it called? Mass formation or mass formation psychosis, mm -hmm. which it sounds very clinical and scientific and, and whatnot, but I think it's easily relatable and understandable. And you know what was missing from both of those interviews is the reason why. So I believe they had identified, hey, we're seeing something strange. We're going to label it this. Makes sense. They couldn't quite put their finger on why. And that's what we're going to talk about in part three. Formation psychosis. It's the hottest term in social media recently. And if you say it, you might get banned from somewhere, you might not be allowed into uh, your cocktail party, depending where this cocktail party is being held. We're going to talk about mass formation psychosis and what is behind it. The recent Joe Rogan interview and the earlier interview with Chris Martinson in December they never quite settled on what is causing that mass formation psychosis. And Jeff, Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Investments, just a moment ago, you were saying, yeah, I've been writing about this for 10 years, the reason why. And Jeff, that's why I call it the silent depression. It's silent because it's unacknowledged. If a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, doesn't make a sound. If a worldwide depression comes along, but the business press and the financial media and the, and the politicians don't acknowledge it and ignore it, does it exist? No, it's a silent depression. Have well, I gone too far? Yes. Yeah, it absolutely exists. But, you know, getting into our thesis here, it contributes to what they're calling, you know, free-floating anxiety and this mass formation psychosis as a predicate condition for it. In other words, what we're really talking about is people... Yes, you see GDP, and if you don't put it on a chart and put the little dotted line for the previous trend, you look at GDP and think, well, it's at a record high, so the economy must be good. The unemployment rate in the United States is at a record low or a 50-year low, so the economy must be good. Everybody says it's booming. Jay Powell, I mean, he's the head of the Federal Reserve. He's got all the credentials. He's got the, the fancy office in Washington. He says the economy's booming, so who am I to argue otherwise? They say the economy's booming. I don't see it. And if this is booming, bleh, the hell with it, right? I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about here is this vague sense that something's not right. They all say everything's good, but I don't see it. The people I talk to don't see it. My neighbors don't see it. We, yeah, I mean, it's not like the worst that we could imagine of the, the old movies of the 1930s where everybody's destitute. So maybe we don't know. This, it's, it just doesn't seem to add up here. Uh, we're going to put some numbers to it. We're going to start with GDP. We're going to talk about world trade. We're going to paint a picture that shows how far off trend we are, how much money, how much economic activity has been missing. But before we do, Jeff, you just said the, the Federal Reserve and Jay Powell says everything is good. And that made me think of the movie Kingpin from the 1990s, 
when uh, Woody Harrelson is explaining why he's smoking, it's because the good people at the American tobacco industry have done a number of studies and they say it's perfectly healthy for you. So the good people at the Federal Reserve who are responsible and are held responsible for how good the economy is, well, they're telling you it's perfectly good, ladies and gentlemen. Shock, are you saying that they would actually use economic data or skew economic interpretations most favorably to their own purposes? I mean, that's shocking, Emil, shocking. There was a study, Jeff, remember, about quantitative easing, and they reviewed quantitative easing literature. And if you work for the central bank or you want to be employed by the central bank or something, if you're related to central banks, then your papers use adjectives that were very favorable and happy and pleasant. While everyone else said, no, I don't know. So it's not just Jeff and I making things up. There's a study that says... There was also what we all know from if you I don't remember if you remember this Emil Milton Friedman I think it was the last oh, yes. interview he gave before he passed away where he yes. said look central banks around the world have hired what was it 90% of all economists so there you go economic opinion they've essentially you know it's sort of like regulatory capture except in the reverse where the regulatory agency that's supposed to be tasked with managing the economy as if that's actually possible at least that's what they describe themselves in, in public They've basically bought off economic opinion to say the most favorable things about the economy because that reflects most positively on their job. So you can understand there's there's sort of a bias here, not even sort of a bias, there's a very <laughs> clear bias in at least that one sense. And when it comes to economics, I mean small e economics, you know, our understanding of the economic situation, where do we what who are we taught to turn to for answers? If there's ever an economic question. Who's the first person on TV that they're going to interview? Somebody from the Fed or somebody talking about somebody from the Fed. So we're, we're led to believe or led by the nose to believe that any kind of economic information, any kind of interpretation about the economy starts and ends with the Fed or the ECB or any central bank. They're the ultimate decider. They're the judge, jury and executioner of everything when it comes to the economy. The parallels to the medical and the health field right now and the crisis that we're going through and how, again, the media says, look to these people. They are the epitome, the apex, technocratic, apolitical. And yet, what have we learned? Uh, that we can't look to them either for information. Okay. For there's, trust. You know, there's, there's a wider discussion we can't have here that I think we should at some point is mm. it's all about science. What is science? And that's, I think, what the public is starting to come to terms with because we had this fuzzy notion beforehand that science was, you know, the smart guy on TV with a cushy job and the government influence, right? Science was all about the scientist. So if we had an authoritative figure like a central banker or somebody from the CDC, on TV giving authoritative proclamations, who are we to argue against it, right? Because they're the ones that are working at the central bank. They're the ones that the government has charged and given all sorts of power and authority to. So how can you possibly argue with these best and brightest, these wise stewards? That's not what science is. Science is the ability to examine evidence and come to reasonable conclusions. So it doesn't matter how authoritative your presence or an aura on the internet, if you can't evaluate evidence and come to reasonable conclusions that offer predictable theories, you know, theories that offer predictions that can be validated, that's not science. That's politics. That's something else entirely. And I think that's part of the discussion we are going to have where people do get the sense that we're being fed scientism 
in the form of pedigree, people who have all the right jobs and all the right education, but the words that come out of their mouth and the things that they say do not make any sense with the world that we live in. They don't correlate at all. They don't match. And so it's not really about the scientist. People are starting to get the sense of a real grassroots appreciation for science, which is make a theory, observe whether or not it comes true. And if it doesn't, don't say the same thing over and over again. Start giving us answers to real solutions to real problems. Mass formation psychosis. Joe Rogan, Chris Martinson, it, it was described but not when and why. We're going to do that right now on this show. We're going to start out with GDP. Jeff, you mentioned it earlier. GDP for the most recent quarter, the third quarter that we have available, is 1.5% better than the Q4 2019 GDP in the United States. You could do this around the world as well. We're using the U.S. as a proxy. So that means we have recovered. So things are better. Jeff, tell us. Tell the audience again what we always talk about, that human activity is nonlinear and that we also have to include what would have happened. We yeah, we live in a nonlinear world, which means we're always changing. We're always growing. We always should be getting bigger. That's the way it is just human nature. So it's not what we were or what, you know, recovery doesn't mean we just got back to where we were when we started this thing. It recovery means getting back to the same trend that we departed when this thing all started. So if GDP was, you know, 19 point whatever trillion in the fourth quarter of 2019, that's not the line to gain. That's not the touchdown. That's not the end zone. The end zone is going further along in the same trend as if we had never deviated from it at all. So it's not recovery until we get back on that same nonlinear trend, which means that in the third quarter of 2021, Yes, we had we've gone above 2019's peak, but we still aren't yet where we should be or we would have been had there been no recession in between or no contraction in between. And where we're still about 500 billion in GDP at an annual rate, 500 billion short of where we should be. Exactly. So is that good? Is that bad? Is that a lot? Is that a little? I mean, 500 billion sounds like a lot, but you know, how do we how do we how do we conceive of 500 billion in GDP, not just 500 billion in GDP, but 500 billion in GDP that didn't happen? How are we supposed to wrap our minds around something like that? Right. So we are at 19.47 trillion in the United States right now. We should be at 20 trillion had we continued on trend. And the example I always give, ladies and gentlemen, if you're not quite following us, is, if, is Moore's law and the transistor chip and the microchip. And how many transistors we're supposed to have on a microchip? We're supposed to double every 18 months or so. That's the trend. That's Moore's law. And it's the same thing with economic activity. If we're increasing the number of transistors, that's not success. If you've fallen off the trend that has existed for decades, that's where we segue to next, Jeff. This, us being off by... How many is it? 50 billion? 500 billion? Yeah, that's 500 a, billion. 500 billion. All right, fine. Maybe we're going to catch up to it in the next few quarters, Jeff. Fine. That's where you segue to next in your article. It's not a COVID issue, right? We have been off trend for a much longer time period. Jeff, by the way, before you tell us how long and which time period for the audience, they can sing along by going to Real Clear Markets. January 7th, 2022, the economy strength 
pre-coronavirus was well overstated. How long have we been off trend? Since around, oh, what was it, 2008? That seems like it's an important year for some reason, and maybe an important year for why we would we'll figure out how we got off trend. But setting that aside, yeah, we have been off trend. GDP has been growing. It has been increasing. It has been setting record highs up until 2019. But it hasn't been on the same path or anywhere close to the same path that it had been on prior to that break, that deviation around 2007 and 2008. In fact, the gap has grown so large, it's, it's literally incomprehensible. The GDP that should have been in the third quarter of 2020, 2021, had the Great Recession actually been a big recession, we would have had GDP around, what is it, Emil, 25, 25. something? 25 trillion instead of 19. So we're off about, oh, 6 trillion or so. And think about that. How do we conceive of 6 trillion? First of all, 6 trillion is, is already incomprehensible, but 6 trillion that didn't happen. How, do we, how are we supposed to appreciate that? 6 trillion that didn't happen in 2021, Jeff. Exactly. 5 yes. trillion that didn't happen in 2020. <laughs> Four and a half in 2019 and backwards and backwards. And you add it all up, Jeff. Yeah. That's 50 trillion, two and a half. How many is that? Two and a half USAs of economic activity that's missing since 2007. Over the last decade. And that's, you know, we had time into this and it becomes so hard for our primitive brains to make sense of all this and say, we've lost about 50 trillion in US in output it, just in the United States. Forget what I mean. This is a global phenomenon just in the US. That's 50 trillion output that didn't happen. So already it's a counterfactual, which is hard for us to understand anyway. And then these numbers are so incredibly large. There's just no way for us to make sense of them in our, our everyday day-to-day -day existence or our layperson experience or anything. You and I, Emil, we're talking about this. We have a very good grasp on what it means and what it does because we see it. We, we see it on charts. We see it in the data. We, see, we connect all these dots with markets and everything else. So for us, this makes a lot of sense. But People who are listening to this are thinking, what the hell are these people talking about? Yeah, these are numbers, but they're just numbers. And it's hard to make a, that intuitive leap from the numbers that are out there, the incredibly huge. In fact, the bigger the numbers get, the more unbelievable they become because they are so large. Because what you guys are saying is that we've lost 50 trillion in, in output. No, that's, that's just crap. That's nonsense. Here's one, another way that we can frame that same idea, Jeff, I haven't seen you do it lately, but you previously put economic growth in the United States since 2007, and you scaled it back to the Great Depression, which no one that's listening to the show right now would say was a wonderful economic period. It was the Great Depression. And you scaled American growth since 2007 through 2020, 2019, whenever the last update you did. Yeah, I think it was 2019 to match the time period. Tell us, what were the results? Were we ahead? <laughs> were we doing better? Was America in 2019, the year before COVID, was it doing better than the great America of the Great Depression? I think people would be surprised to learn that the 1930s outperformed the 2010. Let me say that again. The 1930s, in terms of real GDP, outperformed the 2010. So if you measure GDP from the peak in 1929, and you go forward to about 1939 or 1940, I think it's 1940, GDP will end up higher than if you put the same chart against 2007 to 2019. 
And it's look, the initial collapse was much bigger in the 1930s than it was in 2008. Obviously, 2000, 2009 were big, but they were nowhere near the size of the 1930s. But the economy from 1934 onward came back more rapidly than anything like the economy from 2010 forward. And so that we get to this full on 11 year period, the Great Depression actually had a better recovery overall. I mean, that's, we're just using GDP here. We're not saying that, that the 2010s were worse than the Great Depression. What we're saying is that the end result was really kind of similar. And so that already should, I mean, it's, we're comparing to the 1930s and not favorably. I did a similar study, but I did it on a GDP per capita basis. And I looked at many countries that had data, both for the 20th century's Great Depression and the 19th century's Long Depression. And I compared it to the 21st century's silent depression. Uh, there was 28 countries for which I had data of real GDP per capita. Most of them were trailing one of the two depressions. Very few, very, very few were doing better than uh, both previous depressions. But let's just talk about Great Britain, the United States, Canada, and who else? Australia. All four of, the, of our biggest listener countries more importantly, all four in 2020 were trailing where they were during both of the previous depressions. Jeff, did I make sense of that or did I mangle that? Does the audience understand no, I mean, yeah, I what I'm trying sense. to say? It makes sense to you and me because we're used to this, but I think to most people describing this stuff is incredibly difficult because you don't have any frame of reference to easily understand it in related to your own personal experience, which is really getting at what we're trying to say. We're telling you by market, by data, by study that the last, you know, 13 years in, in the global economy have been not just awful, but historically awful. But that's not what they've heard. That's not it's not easy for people to, to make sense of that in their own personal experience, which leads us into this our psychology discussion that we're going to be having here. This idea of free floating anxiety. Can I double back because you include I've got more data I want to share you. Okay, no, yes. You said global, right? I brought yes. up four countries. I said they're all trailing the, the Great Depression and the Long Depression in year 14 of this silent depression. You bring up global trade and you identify that 10 trillion is missing in economic activity on a global basis. I've got a couple more, Jeff. And that was half a decade ago. That was five years ago. The Thank you. much bigger yes. still. Let me give you an, my estimate. I looked at it two different ways. The uh, UN Conference on Trade and Development, every year they report uh, foreign direct investment around the world. Jeff, they have data going back to the 1970s. You will not be surprised to learn that it was on an exponential path until 2007. Exponential. Ever since then, it hit a brick wall. It's gone sideways. I remind people that the orange trade warrior wasn't elected until 2016, and yet foreign direct investment has flatlined ever since and now been falling how much 62 and a half trillion by my measure of missing foreign direct investment it's let's do mind, yeah it's literally mind-boggling i'm going to wrinkle your brain even more jeff we you talked about missing global trade five years ago i'm going to use the dutch cpb world trade monitor for this data and their data, their measures only go back to 1990. So that's perhaps an unfair comparison because that was the, you know, that's when the, the global post-Cold War globalization really took off. Okay. 
But had we remained on that trend, we would today have $105 trillion worth of just merchandise trade that would have occurred, but that's missing. Just for global, for our global audience, this is how much activity has gone missing during the silent depression. Again, it's, it's the bigger the numbers are, the harder it is to believe that this could actually have happened. That, that's another part of the, the human evolution that we're, we're conditioned not to, not to immediately accept big things like that, big problems like that, because, you know, confirmation bias, recency bias, whatever it is, we're conditioned to believe that, that nothing like that could ever happen. Our modern lives are so cushy and easy that we could not possibly be living in some kind of depression because we would have heard about it at the very least, right? I mean, somebody would have said it on the news. You, well, we talked about why they don't talk, why they don't say anything on the news. Corruption of our institutions. Gallup does a survey every year in the United States. What sort of level of confidence do you have in these institution A, B, C, D, E? And they go through all the institutions in American public life, and they've all been losing ground, as you would expect during a, a fourth turning. Jeff, in your article, you segue from the economic to the social, which is where this crisis has gone. We started as a financial crisis, then it became, became an economic one. In 2014, I would say it became political. And right around that time, too, sometime around that time as well, it started showing up as a social crisis. And you bring up deaths. Drug addiction, yes. Yes. Suicide, yes. And overdoses, those types of things. We've seen those things. And it's not an accident or it's not a mystery when they started to happen. Yes, we have had a drug problem in this country in particular for a very long time. But the level of addictions and deaths that are due to it, including suicides, they really changed. So the rate of change in the economy went down starting around 2007, 2008. And the rate of change in fatalities and drug addictions started to go way up around surprise, surprise. 2007, 2008, in the aftermath of those. Just from a naked correlation standpoint, that's those are two pretty good data points that, as you just said, Emil, that we started out with a monetary crisis, became a financial crisis, became an economic crisis. But as I've been writing for over a decade, it was never going to be limited. The costs of this disaster were never going to be limited to just the financial markets or the economy, that we were going to take a toll not just in human institutions, but also humans, humans themselves in form of lost work, lost souls, lost people, deaths, and all of these other really awful and sordid social consequences for what people cannot explain. And so the drug addiction, fentanyl, the opioid crisis is just some mystery. Why are we doing this to ourselves? And if you don't have any sort of those numbers as we started talking about, it, it really does seem like the world is just falling apart for reasons we can't put our hands on. Our foreign audience outside the United States may be saying, ah, that's just the U.S. problem, the fentanyl. Jeff, if you'll humor me I, for just a couple of minutes, I've got some statistics here from around the world on two key measures that, again, corroborate the story we've been telling. The fertility rate, I've brought it up before in previous shows whenever we come up to this topic, I'm just going to read them out for the audience and you know they can decide you can decide too jeff united states 1997 the fertility rate which is the total births per woman united states it was 1.97 in 2007 jeff it had grown to 2.12 in 2019 1.7 
huge fall. And you know 2020 is going to be worse. Yes. Canada, in the year 2000, they were at 1.49. In 2008 was the peak. The reason I bring up 2007 in the U.S. and 2008 in Canada, I didn't mention it, because that's the peak. And it's gone down ever since. 2000, 1.49. 2008, Canada, 1.68. 2019, 1.47. That's Canada. 2002, United Kingdom. That was their low point, 1.63. In 2008, they were at 1.91. They remained at 1.92 and thereabouts all the way to 2012. No coincidence for Eurodollion. Yep. 2019, they're at 1.65, all the way from 1.92. Australia, 2001 was their low, 1.74 births per women. It rose to 1.98, Jeff, by 2008. Presently, 1.66. You know what's not to interrupt, but you know what's odd about this is that we're told that birth rates are tied to economic wealth, right? that women want to have fewer births or fewer children, the more wealthy society is. And what we're seeing here is the opposite of that. And if, by the way, we've brought, I think we brought, we talked about this before, maybe a year ago or, or longer, where this is a phenomenon we also observed in the 1930s. So this isn't the first time we've seen this. There is a very solid connection between economic depression, long-term prolonged economic problems, and these social disorders. And that's what this really is, this is a social disorder. And it upends the orthodoxy, which says rich societies have more have fewer children, not societies that are growing less rich at a slower pace. We're in the opposite end of the spectrum here. I'm just going to continue, Jeff. You jump in anytime. New Zealand, 1998 was their low point, 1.89. No coincidence. They had rose all the way to 2.18 by 2007. And ever since then, they've gone down. Now they're at 1.72. Life expectancy, another so segueing, segueing, <laughs> yeah, another one. It goes on and on, doesn't it? It's just if you you know, just humor me, Jeff. I'm sorry. The United States, all all life expectancy basically since the 1970s in all these countries has been rising basically. And if there's any sort of a pause or a fall, that's a sign of concern. In the United States, when did these things start happening? 2012, 2013. In 2015, there was a fall. Then there was a fall again in 2016. 2017 remained unchanged. So again, we shouldn't be seeing that. In Canada, they fell off their trend in 2013. So they were on a trend. Now they're off their trend. Yeah, sure, it was increasing life expectancy, but no longer at that rate that they had been experiencing previously. From 2015 to 2017, there was no improvement. From 2018 to 2019, there was no improvement. The United Kingdom, Jeff, a brick wall again. What happened here? They were on a linear path up, unbroken. Then in 2011, 2012, all of a sudden they saw a fall and essentially no improvement. 2014 to 2015, another fall. 2017 to 2018, no change. 2019, a fall. All of these are before the COVID, which you know it's going to be worse. Australia, those people are made of good stock. They've had no decrease in their life expectancy in any year, except that they went off trend in 2008. New Zealand, Jeff, they went off trend in 2010. 
they saw a decrease in 2014, another decrease in 2019. And this applies to uh, non-Anglophone countries as well, advanced economies. I've got something here, Germany, Italy, France, and Spain. Life expectancy at birth, they all saw something strange happen in 2014. No, ex no surprise to Eurodal University fans as to that, what was know, happening again, then. Talk about how hard it is to connect the dots. Think about what we're really saying here is that we have this global social costs that are being exhibited across all sorts of countries around the world and tying it back together to this, what you're really saying, the, the wave of globalization that swept over the entire world was a really positive phenomenon. It did create prosperity, or at least the illusion of stable prosperity throughout much of the world. And then when it stopped, not surprisingly, all of these other things, all these other negative developments popped up, but we don't realize and what we don't really think about because it's not ever admitted is that the reason globalization took to the levels and penetrated as far as it did in the pre-crisis era was because of this monetary system that doesn't officially exist. So we're trying to determine and tie back all of these correlated patterns to a global monetary system that nobody says actually exists or that it's actually out there or that we pay any attention to it. It makes it even that much harder to put our fingers on what's really going on here because you know, we call the show Eurodollar University. We talk about the Eurodollar all the time, but unless people have heard us or have a, paid any sort of attention to something similar about what we're saying or what topics that we're talking about, the term Eurodollar itself doesn't appear in anywhere. It doesn't appear in anybody's language. So not only do we have these missing huge chunks of economy, we also we have as if what's causing it is this monetary system that doesn't actually exist or doesn't officially exist, but it really exists. So talk about how, you know, confused public, how are we supposed to make sense of all these things? We have a monetary system that doesn't officially exist, that broke down in ways nobody can possibly explain, creating an economic depression that nobody admits is happening, leading to all of these disparate social and political dysfunctions that nobody can explain either. It's a wonder what society functions at all in some respects. Well, we're so resilient humans. It's incredible. Even the yeah, human it. body if, down to the individual. If we're going to take something positive out of it, that's, that's the point right there is that despite all of these big bad things that are getting worse, mm. here we are. And here we are in relative, you know, it's, it's historically speaking, relative prosperity, relative levels of peace. Those things may be changing, but still, you know, it's better to live in 2022 than certainly 1940 something or 1440 something. So yes, there's, it's not all bad out there, but it would be nice if we started to connect some of these dots together so that we can do something about it before something changes for the worse in a permanent way. So mass, mass formation psychosis, Chris Martinson, Joe Rogan, watch those episodes. They don't talk about why, why, why are people angry? Why are they so dispirited? Why is something wrong? And I'll use a, I'll paraphrase you, Jeff, because you say this often in your writing, is the slower the rate of economic growth, the more rapid the rate of social change. That's why people are, are angry, because it's been 15 years. So we've got this inverse relationship. And year after year, just how we saw it in the economic accounts that we discussed, they compound that volatility compounds such that after 15 years, we have mass formation psychosis because it's been 15 years of social volatility building on year after year. Jeff, that's it for me.
Yeah, I think that's that's probably the main message here is that, look, we've been saying for a long time that this is the underlying turmoil that's been bubbling beneath the surface. And COVID was, that's the thesis behind Dr. Malone, was that COVID was an opportunity for this pre-existing free-floating anxiety, along with other preconditions, to combine in just the right way to lead to all sorts of really just what the hell is going on here examples all around the world. And it really doesn't matter political affiliation, partisan politics, all that stuff. The whole world just seemed to go mad based on the coronavirus when that wasn't really the case. We had all of the preconditions, especially this free-floating anxiety, that when the COVID crisis and the pandemic hit, we were ripe for the fall. All right, Jeff. Well, that's all I've got. I don't know how to segue out of that. I I wish you a wonderful non-psychosis. All right. Move on to something else next week. All right. Sounds good, Jeff. Thank you very much. Talk to you next week. Okay. Take care, Emil. 